This is episode three of You and AI, a four-part series on understanding artificial intelligence, how it affects you, and how you affect it. This show is hosted, produced, written, developed, created, etc. etc. by me, Esai Humu, and my friend Mohinit Ka. You and AI. You and AI. You and AI. You and AI. Our guest is Dr. Marco Ortolani, and he has PhD in Computer Engineering from Italy's University of Palermo. His research focuses primarily on the extraction of meaningful knowledge by producing machine learning models that are explainable and that humans can understand. Here's a bonus point. Dr. Marco is one of our teachers at Keele University's School of Computer Science and Mathematics. I'm much happier, uh, well, this year than the past uh, few years, I would say. It's, uh, it's again being, uh, well, I'm researching uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning, whatever, so I deal with machines, but still uh, human interaction, I think, is still more important. So I'm very glad to be meeting people in person again. Uh, I believe that technology should be a support for human beings rather than a substitute for human beings. That's our guest today talking about the benefits of human interaction in real time and in real life. Essay and I share the same sentiments. This is why the entirety of the conversation you are about to hear on the challenges of artificial intelligence was had in person on the Kiel campus. Yeah, it's unhurried, you know, flowing in that meandering way that organic communication follows. For this reason, we have not included any respondents, not even our regular text-to-speech companion, Osato, makes an appearance. Um, That's just going to make him sad. Oh, he'll be fine. Here's me kicking off the conversation with a super laid-back, not-at-all intense question. <laughs> Hmm. What's wrong with AI right now? I don't think there is anything wrong personally, so I'm not demonizing AI. Uh, but the thing it is, I think it is building up a new digital divide with people that are able to use AI or to access even AI, mm-hmm. because clearly it takes some some skills that not everybody has at the moment. So any, I think it, that will become even worse. Uh, with the time, basically, uh, there there is a whole a new set of issues. So some people now you are adapting yourself to the AI that you're using in order to, uh, you know, to, to get the good answers that you want, uh, and a lot of other challenges as well. So anyway, there is nothing wrong because I'm, you know, I I think it is always good to research. Uh, then uh, another question is the the use that you make of that research, basically. Mm. So it's uh, it needs to be. Um, uh, you need to be careful, basically. I think that also needs to be taken into account, the consequences that the use, especially large-scale use of research, uh, have in the long run. So nothing wrong in intrinsically. Uh, still, uh, it's good to understand. And the real challenge, I think, is sometimes uh, now we are becoming user unaware users of uh, some techniques. We are not fully conscious of what we uh, are using and what you know, what they take from us. So I'm thinking about algorithms that actually gather information about us without us knowing, 
then of course it's for the good of the algorithm but not necessarily for our good as well hmm. in a way use us i think that's a good phrase right? so we are going to divide this conversation in three parts first we speak on the present technical challenges then the non-technical bits and finally what in your expert opinion be pressing issues in the near future very good so on the technical side because we have audience from a broad area would it be fine if you can just tell us more when you say explainability which is your research focus so what is that exactly yes that's for the question yes it is my interest is my current history interest um, models are becoming more and more accurate but also more and more complicated so it's really uh, we are at the point that they are not understandable from by the lay person basically so they maybe they work but we don't know exactly why they work or why they give us some some result or some answer now this unfortunately may have some you know unintended consequences so it is important not only uh, what is the answer but why is the model giving it this answer especially when uh, that model is used to to make important decisions about ourselves it can be you know a result of a search but it also can be something that affects our lives uh, for instance if we apply for a loan or mortgage and there is an automated model that makes that decision and it refuses the, the loan we are refused the loan uh, maybe we want to know on which basis, because that, of course, can have you know the reasons why it can depend on many many things, and not all of them uh, are uh, intrinsically right in a in a broader sense rather than in a technical sense. So that's uh, so explainability basically aims to provide explanations to the function the internal functioning of a model and there is a term that i actually explainability is a widely used term uh, nowadays i prefer to use uh, according to some uh, researchers rudin cynthia rudin is also a, a very well-known person in the area and she prefers to use the term interpretability which uh, i think it's uh, it's a better one and the differences between explainability would be there is a model and then uh, after uh, you build the model, then you try to provide an explanation. Interpretability means uh, making the model intrinsically uh, open to interpretation, so interpretable, basically. So that's uh, roughly, without going into technical details, that's the area of explainable AI. So it's kind of backtracking how the model reached that particular conclusion about the problem. There are different ways, but yes, one way is okay. that. By the way, it's one of the things that, especially in European Union, but in all the, the, the current mm. laws, it's also a requirement. So we are entitled to have an explanation of automated decisions by uh, made upon us by automated systems. But that's hard to do, isn't it? Yes, that's why we're <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes, it's, uh, it is kind of hard, but it's also challenging because basically it's going one step beyond. Not only does the model need to function, need to be accurate, and that's, uh, that's, that's always been the challenge, clearly. Uh, but now we also wanted to, to make it clear or transparent. That's, uh, you know, interpretable as uh, it's another word for interpretable models. Yeah. And other than making models more interpretable, do you, what other major technical challenges do you think exist in this space? There is many, and actually, well, uh, I, I view interpretability as a tool. Again, it can be a tool for providing human in the loop, for implementing human in the loop, but there are other reasons why you want models to be interpretable, and that these, are so, these are also the reasons, uh, some, some of the challenges uh, behind AI currently. 
uh, AI again more intended as machine learning uh, currently. So, for instance, is uh, uh, you get uh, unintended answers uh, due to bad training, for instance, or due to using bad data. Sometimes, you know, bad data will cause uh, bad output in the end. So, one challenge is how can we make sure that the model uh, has been trained properly? Uh, that's clearly has been, uh, you know, has been well known for for ages. But now the proper data has also been looked at in a different light. So, for instance, you want to avoid bias in the model due to the data that you've used. And there are many, many such examples and uh, a lot of models have been trained or uh, uh, very uh, specific data sets. So, for instance, the typical data set is, uh, you know, maybe the, the white male man. And that's uh, when you're talking about models for e-health can mm. have an effect, basically. So bias is, uh, is uh, one of the challenges. Uh, fairness is another one mm. that is strictly related to that. Again, that was giving you the example of the, of the loan before. I get, I'm refused a loan or I'm accepted for a loan. Uh, we would like this to be a fair decision. And unfortunately, this is not so easy to, to understand if you only consider technical uh, metrics. So you need to consider new ones at least or you need to be aware that those need to be considered so as you were talking about being bias or the fairness in the conclusion so now we are going to say a word and if possible you could just give us an example of this challenge in action and why these challenges matter Is that right. okay? yeah so let's start with ethics so how do you think that would matter the impact of ethics in ai yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting question and I think uh, it, it's now people are starting thinking about that. Again, it's a wide area. Uh, it, it kind of covers uh, some of the things that we mentioned, some of the concepts that we mentioned already. So how to make uh, an ethical use of AI. Uh, it's a very, very open question because I think it's, uh, first of all, it's difficult, difficult to, to, to give it, uh, you know, a unique definition of ethics. Uh, in my opinion, ethics is also some, it's very dangerous territory also because ethics will change over time. Mm -hmm. So it's not something fixed, but it's something so we can think about ethics currently. My personal attitude is that, uh, uh, again, we need to provide the tool for uh, assessing if something is ethical or not. Uh, but we should, uh, well, as a scientist or as a computer scientist, I should not provide definition for ethical behavior or anything like this. That's a job by somebody else. Some people, uh, I think an interesting research that I read is that uh, uh, ethics should be based on um, uh, the definition of human rights, basically. Mm -hmm. So the global human rights and that should drive uh, what an ethical use of AI is. Uh, there is an, an interesting book that um, I think it's a very accessible, it's not a technical book, it's called uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction. And that's uh, interesting because basically is uh, when, uh, you know, techniques that are supposed to be neutral are just mm -hmm. mathematical techniques or it could be machine learning or anything else. Uh, when you make a bad use of those techniques, then they become unethical. And in that case, it was, refer it was referring to large-scale use of models that were used. Uh, one example that was uh, given was uh, uh, to, to assess the performances of school teachers and that led to firing school teachers just because of uh, some obscure use of, uh, of mathematical models, basically. Uh, or mortgages, uh, signing mortgages to just selecting categories of people. Like if I'm only selecting people that are more likely to repay mortgages, 
uh, I could not say that the model is not working. It's it's doing its job, but is it ethical? Uh, maybe you know there is some reason also to consider people that are at a higher risk. That's not specifically a technical question. So I think it, it's an ethical question. But uh, again, uh, what we need to provide, in my opinion, as a scientist, we need to provide the tools to understand the reason behind the the functioning of the model, so that somebody else can decide to make an ethical use of the model. So ethics in AI is, defi is definitely an area, an active area of research. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky one, it's a very, very large definition that I think goes a little behind the scope or beyond the scope of uh, just a technical question. So it needs to be an interdisciplinary question involving uh, more people than just uh, the scientists in AI. That's nice because next I was going to ask you to speak on inclusion. Yeah, so inclusion around diversity of um, appearance, identity, but also backgrounds, yes, backgrounds, expertise, this, yeah. technical, well. non technical. And do, you, like do you think that's a challenge in inclusivity and in, yeah. for? At many levels, yes. I did mention already uh, there is, I think, a new digital divide that is creating between people that can access on one side and also understand the, the models because of, you know, uh, preparation. Also, those models risk creating inequalities rather than, uh, you know, favoring uh, the opposite, basically. And the inequalities can be uh, depending on, uh, you know, many, many reasons. One of the reasons is, uh, you know, the models are usually data hungry, so they need more and more data to be more and more accurate. Uh, sometimes uh, they, they go beyond their intended scope in monitoring quantities that uh, they should not be monitoring and that usually results in inequalities, basically. So uh, you were mentioning background, for instance, it's very, very easy for models to, to make inferences on background of people, depending sometimes the, the, the most, uh, the simplest uh, quantity to monitor is uh, geographical location, mm. which is something that can be given away very, very easily. Unfortunately, geographical location can be easily linked to, uh, to earnings, to, to background, because there, there is a correlation between those things. And so it is very difficult to understand when the model makes a decision using the geographical location just because of just as a location or as a proxy for ethnicity, for background, for, uh, for wealth. And that's uh, an entirely different story. So uh, basically there are challenges. There are challenges due to the fact that I, I would say that most of the machine learning that we are seeing today uh, is called uh, data-driven machine learning and it's very hungry on data. So it feeds on data and it requires that more and more data is collected. But the, the question there I think is, uh, is not, the, not only the collection of data, but what use do you make of this particular this data that you that model use? So since you were talking about fairness, do you think having people from different backgrounds and different ethnicity can kind of decrease the bias we have in the AI models? Definitely. That's uh, one thing. First of all, you need to have, and that's actually one of the uh, one of the recommendations, at least. Uh, not only you know using data from people of different ethnicities, backgrounds, and genders, and so on and so on, but also people that actually do active research. So the researchers need to be diverse. 
yes, definitely. Because again, we live, and that's uh, I think it's human nature. So we, due to the the way we are brought up, uh, we we create our own biases, and so if we surround ourselves by people that are too similar to us. It's kind of living in a bubble. So the first way, the first thing is to open up or break that bubble. So definitely, yes, that's absolutely. So what do you think would be the challenge on the privacy of the user? Yeah. So do you think that's a challenge? Definitely, it is a challenge. Clearly, well, again, I mean, I, I, it's not. Uh, I don't think we should be scared of AI or models. I think there is a, you know, there is a, a very good use that we can make of them. Uh, again, the, the issue is um, uh, to make sure that they respect some constraints. What constraints they respect? Uh, we have a good example, basically, because especially in Europe, uh, GDPR changed everything. And GDPR set a change of pace in defining uh, what privacy is and what are the boundaries of uh, even of the use of uh, automated decisions. Some people say, say that uh, it's a little vague the way GDPR um, defines those things, but it did, uh, it did set um, uh, a precedent, I would say, uh, that basically now a lot of companies, a lot of researchers need to abide by. So whenever you design something, you know that there are limits on that. My whole point in this discussion is basically, again, privacy needs to be kind of imposed on uh, on our algorithm. So if I'm judging purely for, from a technical point of view, uh, I wouldn't want any privacy at all because basically, you know, the more data and the more access to data I have, the better it is from a technical standpoint. But clearly there need to be limits. Now, what makes it interesting for me is uh, we know that there are limits and clearly, you know, it's a challenge, it's a technical challenge to still achieve uh, good results within the limits. Mm -hmm. But how can we be sure that one model or one technique respects those boundaries because sometimes you can there are techniques uh, for instance some one technique that is called de-anonymization so you can uh, data that are anonymized for privacy protection okay. sometimes depending if data is not properly collected or properly handled you can get back to the identity or at least partially identify some interesting characteristics of people and clearly especially when characteristics are referring to sensitive topics like health sexuality or uh, ethnicity gender, gender exactly uh, the it, it, it becomes uh, very very risky now again from my point of view it's it's another challenge so it's a challenge to investigate those things and to make sure to analyze uh, so to provide techniques to analyze the, the methods that are already used to investigate if they respect constraints or not so it, it's always going to be like this I think research is always a you know a challenge so you you know, there is a new challenge, then you find the solution, there will be another challenge yet, and then we keep going until, well, forever, actually, there will not never be a perfect solution, but it's, you know, evolution of science, I would say. Yeah, I'm going to ask a question, I want you to answer without thinking. Is privacy a myth? It's, um, it's an interesting question, yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> yes and no, but also I think w w I was doing some reading and I think it's also privacy is a very cultural thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, we are usually, and that's also, we are biased, everybody is biased and sometimes we are unconscious as biased. Uh, when we talk about privacy, we have a very, very Western point of view. 
uh, if you're thinking about you know uh, other societies they see privacy in a very different way uh, i think it boils down to how much you value individual with respect to society and how much are you likely to give away your own uh, privacy as an individual for the benefit of society and there are many many examples i'm not an expert in this field so i don't want to say incorrect things but there are different cultures that value uh, the the social aspect of a, of a group more than the individual aspect of a group mm. and they have a different vision of privacy still anyway clearly i also i, I value privacy anyway so i think there are, there are limits but again as before the point is uh, those limits are decided by um, culture, context. Culture, context, politics. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah in, in the best sense of the word. I mean, politics is the thing that should drive uh, yes. those definitions rather than public discussion. Public discussion, clearly, yes, exactly. Politics in the, exactly, in the terms of not, you know, the politicians, but just the, the society, the democratic society as a whole. So the answer is it depends. It always is. <laughs> yes, I know. It always is. It always is. It depends. But again, my, it is my point of view. Not just because I don't want to have a position, because I do have my opinion. But in, in terms of computer science, I think it's more providing the tools for other people to to make a decision. And I mean, if you ask me, clearly, I am. Uh, I strong. I, I, you know, I, I do think that privacy should be preserved. The privacy of the individuals should be preserved. So I would use it in that way. But still, we need to be aware that there are mm. different issues in that field as well. Okay. Okay. So on the social side, let's lastly talk about the environment. So are there any environmental impact of the large computation leads for AI? Is this a big issue in your opinion? Yes, there are, uh, because of course uh, we are reaching a point. As we say, as I said before, is uh, data hungry. It also means that you need a lot of computation. Uh, I think a good example in this uh, in this way is blockchain. Uh, blockchain basically uh, aims to you know it advertised itself as a very very democratic way. So everybody, yeah. you don't need a central controller. So anybody is at the same level, kind mm -hmm. of. However, the downside of it is that uh, you need uh, the access is regulated by uh, how much computational power you can get in order to be part of this uh, blockchain. So the access to the blockchain is regulated by performing a lot of computation. So intrinsically, it requires a lot of computation, which basically requires power. And then, you know, it has an effect on the environment. Data centers are usually very, very uh, energy hungry in that case as well. That's why sometimes are, they are located in cold countries just because you want to make use of the, you know, the cooling, uh, the, cooling yeah. the, the natural cooling, basically. But the more we need, we make use of those, you can imagine, you know, the big companies, but any company that has big data storage, they, are, they have an impact on the environment. Uh, again, it's uh, it's something that uh, do we need it? Uh, well, it's a price to pay. Uh, mm. Do we need to be aware of that? Definitely. So, do we need to research ways of uh, having le less impact on the environment? Definitely. Yes, that's uh, you know, that's in itself. I think it's uh, it's a good area of research. Okay. What it sounds like is, as with everything else, there are pros and cons. And it's a balancing act of trying to decide how much we are willing to give, who will hold the other accountable, and just how to make sure that at the end of the day it's a net positive for society. Yes, okay. I agree on that. And that's exactly my point. 
Uh, again, I'm not an, not because I don't want to have an opinion, but I think uh, my role as in research, the way I see it is to enable informed decisions on part of other people. And that's the problem sometimes. The risk there, and again, I was talking about politics, sometimes there is a very, very large gap in politics because clearly uh, politicians are not necessarily um, informed about the technical side of it, and sometimes they don't even have the, the good advisory group. But uh, so they make decisions, they, are, they need to make decisions without having the necessary information. So the point I think it's, it always depends that there will always be pros and cons. Whatever decisions we make will have impact. Uh, but I think the more informed we are, we are about those, uh, that's the only way to be basically. So and our job as uh, scientists, I think, is to provide uh, information basically on Right. I know we've talked a bit about bias and fairness, but I just wanted to ask if it's difficult to make AI systems fair and unbiased, and if it is, why? And how might we go about changing, changing that? Yes, it is difficult, it definitely. And again, the problem is uh, definition first, what mm. is fair, what is biased. Uh, and the second thing is transferring those decisions into the system. Uh, first of all, I think uh, we are intrinsically, any of us is intrinsically biased and so we are naturally, uh, you know, we tend naturally to transfer those biases into our algorithms and then of course there is the tendency of not recognizing the bias. Yeah. So basically the absence of bias sometimes is basically a matching bias on our own. So that's, so it doesn't mean that it's unbiased. So that's the first thing. Uh, same thing with fairness as well. Fairness, there's been many attempts of, defi of definitions of fairness. Some of, some of them are based on statistics, so you can, you can try to translate them into you know, statistics, properties of your data, of the decisions, and so on and so on. It is an open topic. The good thing, I think, is that, first of all, you need to recognize the issue in order to start solving the issue. And I think now we are in this position, so it's been part of the public discourse for a few years now, and I think that's already a, a good track. So ignoring the problem is can only make make it worse. Right now, we at least we are aware that there is a problem of fairness, on bias in algorithms and in other fields as well. The solution is not there, so there is no unique solution yet. I don't think there will ever be because it's uh, intrinsically you cannot provide a, a mathematical definition of fairness or or, or bias. But still, again, it, you can provide tools to make the problem more apparent and then mm. make informed decisions as before. So it's unfortunately, I think it's, uh, uh, it's the same question as can we have an ethical AI? Uh, yeah, we can, but ethics will change over time. And uh, so I don't think we'll reach the point where we could say we're, we're satisfied. Exactly. So check, check mark. <laughs> now we're solved. I don't think we'll, we'll ever get there. It will always be an improvement, hopefully. Okay, we have spoken a lot about the technical and more social problems that are currently happening. A lot of people are worried about the future mm -hmm. um, when it comes to artificial intelligence, and it's a it's a wide range of worries, right? Mm -hmm. um, people are worried about, I think, three things primarily. The first one I'd say is job loss on some level mass job loss. The other one I'd say is in widening inequality and you've spoken about that and that can be on a person-to-person -person level, it can be on a corporation level as well. 
I worry that with AI, the Googles and the Microsofts of the world will just like antitrust will become something entirely different. And then the last worry I think is singularity. <laughs> that worries a lot of people. So those are three, and I wondered if we could just touch on um, each, of each of them. Yeah. Starting maybe with job loss? <laughs> yeah, job loss, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, I, again, I'm not sure if I'm qualified with a you know, very, very uh, informed discussion on this, but my opinion on that is that there will be job losses, everything, whatever new technology is implemented, mm. it usually results in job loss, but hopefully in creation of new types of jobs. And I think that's uh, so, I mean, you can think about data scientists. Now there is a high demand of data scientists, which is a kind of a new job because now every single company is Needs looking one. into analyzing their own data to make informed decision. So you need to have different skills for that. Uh, and those are jobs that didn't exist uh, a few years ago, basically. So uh, automating the decision process clearly maybe makes some other jobs redundant. It, can, it could be the same in uh, automation in terms of uh, machine automations or, or other things. Usually, I think uh, I've read somewhere that uh, exactly whenever a new disruptive technology is introduced, it does result in job loss for you know outdated jobs and ideally should result in new jobs in, in another kind of field, basically. So overall, the problem there is with society adapting to that. Uh, so the new jobs may be not so easily available un unless you have a substrate of um, preparation and that could be, again, cultural preparation, technical preparation, uh, you know, schools and universities and all at all levels, basically, and clearly the economic uh, background to sustain those new jobs. Uh, so it, it may mean that, uh, you know, some, uh, some societies or nations are uh, can adapt more easily to, to that and some other don't. So in those societies that don't, clearly they will experience job losses without the advantage of the new technology and other, and other ones will, uh, will arise. We'll see who will win. You were mentioning before the, the AI war between powers. Uh, again, it, it is in, in a sense a war and some, some people may, may win or may have better outcomes than others, basically. But yeah, it's going to be a race. I'm hoping in my, you know, uh, utopistic viewpoint, it doesn't need to be a, a, a dangerous competition. It mm, could be collaborative. A, a collaborative competition, exactly, where everybody it doesn't need to be. I mean, this is really not one, one of the cases uh, that not necessarily uh, one needs to emerge at the expenses of the other. I have people who beat both of us if we don't ask you about singularity and if we're going to get not just general AI but general AI to rule us all with consciousness, emotions, feelings, personhood, the recent squabble with um, being yeah. asking why I exist and all of that and deeply worried people. <laughs> and telling that I love you and stuff, that yeah. it has feelings. Yes, obviously. That's, I think, uh, is very much uh, a press, uh, you know, <laughs> a press hype, I would yeah. say. We are very, very far from that. Uh, again, it's been shown and people have been discussing really that, first of all, as I said, uh, people are really questioning if those, those tools are intelligent in the first place, let alone conscious. So we are not there yet. I don't think there is anything inside that says that we are going to go there very soon, uh, if ever. 
Now, if ever, it's a different question. So maybe eventually uh, that I really don't know. I don't think, uh, yeah, not really. I don't, I would say that's one of the things that possibly people will take, will, will quote me in a couple of years. <laughs> but I don't think in our lifetime we will see that kind of thing because it's, uh, even though the pace is, is increasing a lot, but what we are seeing right now is nothing close to human intelligence. Uh, so it's um, it's impressive. It's very very useful. It's it's definitely great, but it's not human level intelligence and conscience as well. I know that there there is research into artificial consciousness as well, but nothing that is uh, you know translating into something immediately uh, developing. That said, clearly it, it is part of research. So people are also researching that kind of intelligence. Uh, I, I don't, there is no immediate danger, at least. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, so, yeah. as a part of a last semester, we had to kind of look into chatbots. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not sure I should take the name or not, but there was this one particular application of a chatbot in which they showed that the users, they kind of became dependent on that chatbot and just wanted to talk up to it and not to the people around. Mm -hmm. So, do you think that's kind of a problem? Oh yeah, definitely. That's that's a whole different story. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, yeah. There is a. I mean, the social aspects and the impact of those things are definitely a, a real thing. And uh, I, I mean, in this case, I think it can be more instructive to watch an episode of uh, uh, some you know some Netflix series, <laughs> Black Mirror. I think would teach us. There are a few episodes that are really interesting in the potential impacts that those things have, and we are definitely experiencing those things. But again, that's material for more psychology, I guess, and social uh, social studies. Given all of these challenges that we've discussed, the entire breadth, the current ones, technical ones, social ones, future ones, it's a lot. <laughs> and I understand the point you have tried to make this entire episode, and I agree with it, which is that Artificial intelligence is not intrinsically bad. It is not. It's exactly. like saying electricity is intrinsically bad. Exactly. It's a tool. Exactly. Right? Exactly. But we have to admit that it's a pretty powerful tool. Absolutely. With powerful consequences, positive and negative. Given this power and this potential, should we do the pros outweigh the cons? There are those who don't think we should be touching it at all. What do you think? I I think I, I'm always in favor of advancing knowledge anyway. So I think, uh, yes, definitely it's, uh, uh, it's not by hiding. So you cannot stop uh, the sea with a stone, I would say, in Italian, something like this. So uh, research is going and uh, there will be progress in that regard, regardless of what we want it or not. So it's not a matter of stopping it or, uh, um, you know, or kind of hiding it. Uh, but it's governing it. That's uh, my point of view. And that's why I think informed decisions are key. Uh, I think a lot of those discussions, if we, uh, if we could travel back in time, uh, is television gonna be, you know, gonna change our lives? Is cinema gonna change our lives? Is the train gonna be, you know, the train was seen as a, a, demo a demonic appearance uh, because it was not natural. People are not supposed to fly, you know, we are, we are not created to, to go in the sky, yet we do. Uh, so again, it's not stoppable, I think, and again, it should not be stopped. 
uh, or censored or anything like that, it should be governed, yes. So not everything that is technically possible is good, not everything that is technically possible needs to be done, but this doesn't mean that we should not investigate those things. That's uh, my opinion at least. I think you should do research nevertheless. There are a lot of other things that I'm sure this interview would be much more difficult in if you're talking with, uh, you know, biologists that are experimenting with genetics and something Ooh, like this. CRISPR. Oh, yeah. <laughs> should you do it? Uh, well, maybe you could solve cancer forever, but also maybe you're inventing make designer new babies. babies. Yeah. But then again, the problem is then regulating things, not yeah. not inventing them. Also, because I, I really think that sooner or later they will get invented. So you cannot really stop this kind of progress. This society as a whole goes in one direction sooner or later things. So if real AI is possible, sooner or later it will become a reality. So we need to get ready for that rather than stopping it or whatever. If you try to stop it, it, it will become uncontrolled, which is even worse. I think. Yeah, you just drive innovation underground and there are no rules to guide it. Exactly, exactly. It seems like Europe has become the regulator. Europe has assumed the position of lead gov governance, right? Do you think that, and a lot of countries are coming up with a lot of um, guidelines or tools. I know the US is. Um, has some in the works as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that regulation and governance for the AI space is going in the right direction? Is enough being done? It's it's an interesting thing. I think it's very good that people are starting talking about that. I am European, first of all, and I, I do appreciate the concept of Europe. And again, that's I think that's a, a positive byproduct. Mm -hmm. So Europe in itself is still is not even a federation. So there are so many different voices. Northern Europe culturally is so different from Southern Europe. And, they, and I think this is actually a positive effect of that, trying to find this, which I don't think it's happening in US, for instance. US is talking with one voice. So it's really, they are one opinion. Here is uh, this discussion. I think it's very interesting that Europe produced that. Uh, so yes, I think it's, uh, it's positive and also the way they are doing it by uh, it, it was not done only by uh, a, pol a political decision, basically. It was so in, in um, um, how do you say, they consulted yes, uh, they, scientists yes. and everything. The, there is this person, I, sorry, I didn't mention before because I didn't remember her name. Jung is called Y-E-U-N-G. Okay. Uh, she's a professor in Birmingham, I think. And that she's the one that was saying, uh, well, you know, ethics is so difficult to define and everything. So our guideli guidelines should be the Declaration of Human Rights. So that's where we should, we need to make a choice. That should be our choice when we talk about privacy, when we talk about everything else. So that's, and she said, and that's, uh, you know, she's in law. I think that's a good discussion to have. And she kind of informed uh, the regulation, I think, also in Europe. There is Luciano Flavidi, he's a philosopher, and he's also in part of the discussion in Europe. I think it's a, it's a productive way of discussion. Again, Euro, GDPR says you had the right to know the, the, the reason why an, an artificial algorithm makes a decision. That's what it says. It's important that they say that. Unfortunately, yes, you have the right, but then what, how do you do it? That's the trick. So they don't say that. But still, you know, it goes in the right but. direction. So it's uh, in the US, they are not even there yet. Uh, they are working on that because of Europe. Yes. Really because, of, and I think that's the important thing. I don't, I don't think they would have done it if Europe 
I don't take that step. So I think it's, uh, yeah, basically I'm in favor of that. Even UK, I mean, UK right now, uh, even after leaving Europe, uh, and now I think it's going to be very difficult to repel all those laws, but basically they are, they have one thing so far, they, we, let's say here, that's called UK GDPR. Right, so it's yes, not GDPR, it's UK GDPR, yeah. which is an exact copy. So we have been talking a lot about challenges and problems. So let's maybe talk about the solutions. <laughs> so, you know, how do we go about fixing some of these challenges? Uh, well, again, this is active research. So some of the things in my specific area, again, I see interpretability as a tool for fixing some of those inequalities or fairness. So that's one thing. Uh, there is another research, and not uh, specific, uh, specifically, you know, trained in that, but uh, environmentally friendly uh, applications of AI or environmentally friendly implementations of AI. It is an area of research, uh, research on privacy. So there are there is research going on. So it's not only uh, again, I'm definitely not negative. It's just awareness of the risks. But I think in every of those, each singular one, there is active research. Uh, I, I'm not sure that we need to be looking into fixing things so there will never be a definite fix of things it will always be a discovery of new a discovery of solutions that will bring new challenges and new so the horizon is going to be always one step beyond us basically this will create new challenges and new new things that for sure there are things that we will never imagine i mean again try the exercise i think is let's try to make the exercise of uh, bringing ourselves back in time 10 years or 20 years. Uh, there are things that are completely unimag unimaginable, basically. So, yeah, I guess it's, uh, I don't want to show my age, but uh, <laughs> when I was your age, uh, I mean, when I actually, well, at least when I was in uh, you know, elementary school or primary school, internet didn't even exist, you know. Uh, I, I could not imagine that. I could not imagine talking about ChatGPT today, basically. Yes, in one lifespan, it is happening. So I'm assuming that by the same, uh, by the same measure, uh, in the remaining part of my life, some things that I cannot currently imagine will appear, and there will be other challenges and fixes in the meantime. I think fixes generates new challenge that will call for new fixes and so on and so on forever. Which I think personally I find it. Uh, stimulating and attractive. <laughs> Can you please tell us about some useful resources for those who are looking to learn more about these challenges that we have spoken about in this episode? Yes, so it, it is kind of tricky, I guess. Uh, well, uh, well, one uh, that I would point out again, I was mentioning the Alan Turing Institute. Yeah. I find that there are a lot of interesting resources in there. So exploring the website is useful. They have some uh, resources available and they have these data study groups that publish uh, a lot of research, not necessarily a super technical one, but it's also accessible to people. Uh, Social media are also a good place if you follow interesting people or uh, relevant people, at least in that uh, in that regard. Uh, I was thinking about maybe, you know, it's not uh, necessarily that mm, you agree with everything that they say, but at least they drive uh, the public discourse. Jan Lekun is one, is the, you know, is, uh, ah. he works in Facebook and yeah. uh, he is very, 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 very active on social media. Again, I don't necessarily think he's completely unbiased in his point of view, <laughs> but definitely, especially in those, uh, in this regard, he has interesting opinion. 
Uh, Francois Cholet is another person that I follow on uh, social media. They are interesting. There is a website. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Bear, spelled B-A-I-R. Uh, it's a Berkeley AI research, and they also publish interesting uh, things. Um, so yeah, it's uh, th those are kind of resources. But in this case, really, yeah, social media. It's, I find it very, very interesting place as long as you stay away from the flame wars that are <laughs> there. That's uh, yeah. I think this is a good place to leave it. Do you, okay. Do you think? Okay. Yes. Do you want to say? Uh, yeah, but we have to tell him thank you first because he's ah. been talking for so long. Thank you so much for being on today's episode. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure to talk Has to you. It? Absolutely. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm 100% sure. 200%. I'm not as optimistic with job loss though. I do think that the proliferation of artificial intelligence in the coming years will lead to unemployment at an unprecedented scale, not one that will even out. But Dr. Marco was right in saying that how we as a people, our government, the global community and big tech act will determine the impacts that AI will have on jobs and other issues. Those who change the world for the better see challenges as exciting, urgent and important opportunities. So if you are one of such world changers spurred on by this conversation, but pretty unsure where to look or how to start, then the last episode of this pod, which is on opportunities for you in AI, is just what you need. Mm-hmm. So don't forget today we've spoken with Dr. Marco Ottolani. He has a PhD in computer engineering from Italy's University of Palermo and is one of our lecturers at Kiel University's School of Computer Science and Mathematics. His research focuses primarily on the extraction of meaningful knowledge by producing machine learning models that are explainable and that humans can understand. You and AI is made by SI Uhumu and Muinit Gaur. So thank you to our guest. Music for this episode was produced with Python Code. Check out the website for a post on how we did that. See you on the next and final episode. Until then, stay curious. Bye. You and AI. You and AI. You and AI. You and AI. You and AI.